This is the Hold Fast Light Program. Seven Hardcore. Welcome to South London Hardcore. I'm Jack McEnroy. My co-host is Steve Walsh. Hello. On this week's show, we've got another inductee to the South London Hardcore Hall of Fame. And it's our first who was born outside of South London, Spike Milligan. Not even born in the UK, born in India. And never even a British passport holder. We'll get to that. Pune in India. His dad was in the army there. And uh, spent a bit of time in Rangoon in Burma as well. In India until he was 15. Which, I know, I mean, it's just, I knew that, but did you know that? I didn't know that. I didn't know. Was like, for some reason, I imagined him sort of like seven or eight, sort of having vague childhood memories. But 15, you can have quite vivid memories, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, it was all he knew until, like, until we came to South London. So they came over in 1931, when I guess he was about 13. They came for a year and stayed in, I think it was four, Winstead Road in Catford, where they had family. And then a year later, his dad was made redundant, and like he left India crying. Apparently, like it was his homeland. And so, yeah, they came to live at uh, fifty. Is it Rizaldean Road, Broccoli? Yeah, Rizaldean Road. But when they first arrived in England, they spent their first few nights at the Union Jack Club. Oh, up by Waterloo. Yeah, right. Because that's for servicemen. Yeah, yeah, that would make sense. So I guess that was his, his final days as a serviceman. Dad was sort of uh, getting a few nights kip in uh, Waterloo. It's a funny little place. And I saw a couple of in their photos taken outside of it with like, you know, medals on the chest and stuff the other day. You've never been in, Steve. No, no. Uh, I'd never heard of it until we did the Waterloo episode. Oh, right. And I always try and sort of like, occasionally try and sneak a look at it because it's like down the side of the road, mm. uh, off Waterloo roads. But yeah, you can't really see it from the bus. Yeah, I mean, I used to walk past it on the way to school, depending on the route I took. So, yeah, he went to Brownhill Boys' School, which later became... Catford Boys' School. And he went to Woolwich and Greenwich Day Continuation School as well. And it was quite a culture shock in in all ways. He talks about the weather, or his parents were like... His parents eventually went to live in Australia in the uh, 60s or 70s. Obviously pining for the uh, Southern Hemisphere sun, I suppose... But on top of that, you know, they, you can imagine there being like white, them being white people in India at that time, or probably even now, to be honest. You, uh, they had it cushy, and they come to England and he's eating banana sandwiches because they can't afford like nutritious meals. And yeah, you're just in, another family. Yeah, miser- living in a miserable little house. So it's interesting, although, as we say, not born or even up to a point raised in London when he comes to London and comes to know England, it is through South London. So I think we can make a claim upon him having very formative years in South London. It does seem to have left its mark across the rest of his work as well. Follows in his father's footsteps, goes into the army. His time in the army is covered in, it, in, the, uh, in his autobiography. His first volume is uh, Adolf Hitler, My Part in His Downfall. And then, I don't know how many volumes there are, six, seven? Seven, I think, yeah, yeah. Yeah, comprehensively covered um, the various people he met and experiences he went through, including um, his part in the Battle of Monte Cassino, where he is wounded and suffers shell shock, which seems to trigger mental health issues that plague him for the rest of his life. Oh, right, yeah, I didn't put the two together. Well, I mean, I'm no psychologist and obviously uh, even if I was I haven't got access to his case but it does seem that's the first incident and whether it's something that had happened before and this is the first time it's been recorded but it does seem like this is this is he has a a breakdown and has breakdowns across his life but also in the army discovers the opportunity to meet and perform with other servicemen musically dramatically comedically and that seems to give him a new lease of life as well a new focus in terms of his uh, future yeah although he was into the jazz trumpet wasn't he so I mean there was a bit of a torn I suppose but yeah, and he meets Harry Seacombe in the army as well didn't he have you read the uh, their meeting how they met no no like 
So apparently there's this bang, and like Spike Milligan appears from a truck, or Terence as he was known then, and says, uh, has anybody seen my gun? And then Harry Seacom goes, what colour was it? And like, you know, that hilarious... They're cracking up. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, we should be recording this. <laughs> but, you know, from that meeting, Harry Seacom, Spike Milligan, and then you get Peter Sellers, The Goon Show, which is really why we're sitting here, isn't it? It's why we're uh, not why we're sitting, not why we're doing radio. <laughs> I mean, the shadow, the influence yeah. of that show, just. I so mean, that's that's why Spike. That, you know, there are many reasons, but that is the, the key contribution of Spike Milligan, I think, and why he's in the sun. Oh, it's all, but also the the breakout for all of them, sellers mm. included. I mean, this show makes stars of everyone in it, and it's something that you have to admire in terms of innovation. The style of it, the, the the performative elements, the writing, also the technical elements as well. They're doing things. Milligan in particular is demanding things of the sound people at the BBC that no one's really done before. Yeah, there's talk that there were five decks going at certain points with like different sound effects and music. And, and I think it's important to recognise that creators like this are key to the development of things where... It's almost like Milligan didn't really understand technically how these things work, so wouldn't really accept no as an answer. He'd demand something, and they'd go, well, we can't really do that. they go, but we do need to do it. So they'd find a way to do it, as you say, using, layering, and, and you know, innovating whole new ways of recording that then feed into and out of the uh, radiophonic department at the BBC, which is obviously um, massively famous. So it seems like it was a real fertile atmosphere for people to be creative in the show itself obviously um the scripts are fantastic but it does feel like there's a lot of, of space to ad lib and if you've got someone like peter sellers involved that's going to be a gift so it, it feels like it was formatted in a way to allow everyone to shine and give people to excel in a way that you wouldn't get it in in radio at the time anywhere else i'd imagine right but also, there's, as you say, space to ad lib, Steve. I don't know, it's just, it's so tight, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I'm saying the opposite of what you've said there, tight <laughs> space. But do you know what I mean? It's just like, you're listening to it and you're like, how oh, are these people not making, like, why are there not more errors and stuff? Right, right. Like, it's just so, like, snappy and, like, this effect comes in and, you know, the orchestra comes in at this point. Right. Yeah. You can see why they have the uh, musical breaks, can't you? Just to give them a rest. Yeah, to get a breather, change a costume. The majority of the writing is left down to Milligan and he finds there's a lot of pressure there in terms of producing. And also producing, you do get this feeling as well with him, producing at a particular level. He does demand a lot of himself and, and people around him. And the show debuts in 1951 and by 1952 the pressure has proved too much and he has another uh, breakdown that involves a psychotic moment where he becomes convinced that he has to kill Peter Sellers. Did you read about this? I did. I find it... It's a strange one, isn't it? He goes to Peter Sellers' house with a potato knife yeah, and uh, walks through a glass door. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if that's been embellished or something. Right. I mean, that seems... Because this is... You know, he was bipolar. He suffered from bipolar. Yeah. But he never suffered from mania. I mean, I did, I, I'm nicking that from one of his from a, a bi, uh, biography, which uh, I don't know who wrote it. But it wasn't. I was reading segments; it weren't very good. But it does seem very early as well in them working together and performing together for him to make an attempt on one of his fellow performers' life, and then then go on to work. Together yeah, I mean, for apparently he arrived and said, "I'm here to kill Peter Sellers." Like, just don't. It don't ring. I mean, it's not, it's funnier than it is. It rings true. I think. Yeah, and I say a year in. If it was like five years later, yeah, you'd yeah, sort yeah. of go, well, you know, obviously working together, the relationship has deteriorated at such a point. But a year in, it seems odd that Peter Sellers would then sort of go, these things happen. You know, let's do another five series of The Goon Show. So the show itself, Steve, it's, uh, it's kind of boy's own type of setting, isn't it? You know, it's quite extravagant. Uh, you know, they'd be going to India and uh, to Africa, South America, all over the place. And... It's a bit of a kind of caper, isn't it? Yeah. With a, yeah. Uh, you know, lots of puns in there, satire, a bit of wordplay and stuff. And a huge cast as well, isn't it? Very ambitious in terms of 
the scale. And when I say cast, mm. a cast of characters rather than uh, the cast of yeah, songs. Just because it's, it's, it's reliant on all of yeah. them being able to perform a number of different roles. And as you say, to interchange between them at the drop of a hat. Yeah, I mean, Harry Seacombe sort of is the anchor, isn't he? And he's just got a tremendous voice, and he... It's so rich, isn't it? It is, isn't it, yeah. I mean, his normal speaking voice, uh, I'm old enough to remember Highway 6.30 on a Sunday uh, evening, which was a show where Harry Seacombe would wander around Britain, visiting various churches, talking to clergy and parishioners, and then leading them into a hymn. And obviously the singing voice was what he became best known for. But just his... uh, gregarious approach to life and very sort of compelling even if you're not a particularly spiritual person he seemed like a a, a real sort of bright uh, person to be around really sort of inspirational mm. character um, Peter Sellers you know what do you say about him good to me he's so <laughs> good and he, he he makes a show in some ways he's his range of voices and they're so funny as well it's not just like he can do a load of voices he's hilarious like there's, he's got um, there's one episode I was listening to The Spanish Suitcase which was a good one and um, he's doing this kind of shop assistant I mean you don't really know what the gender is but like it's like a lot of tremolo in his voice he, you know oh, I was almost going to do it again <laughs> he's kind of thrown it all over the place and he, he's just absolutely brilliant. I mean, obviously, he goes on to do other extraordinary things to the point where, you, uh, you know, people may not even know that he was in The Goons, yeah, possibly. Yeah. Spike Milligan does the least of the three, doesn't he, in terms of voices? Yeah. But, you know, it's his... It's his he, energy he, that feeds into it. Yeah, and he's the, he is the writer, for, yeah. for, uh, for the most part. Eric Sykes co-wrote some of them, uh, a whole season, I think. Yeah, and there's a couple of other guys that do bits and pieces, but apparently later on... Milligan sort of downplays their contributions and it does feel from you know this work and then looking at the other work that he produces there's definitely a, a sort of clear line between them isn't there so there was uh, 250 episodes recorded uh, 160 survived I mean there's two, there's two things here wiping yeah. the BBC pro, um, practice of wiping which I don't think I'll ever get over you know there's a Wikipedia page for it um, they used to delete things so they could reuse the tapes. Things. Yeah, yeah. And like, you know, when we we'll talk about Q later, Q five, um, this uh, sketch show, I suppose you'd call it. We'll talk about it in a minute. And the first series of that was erased. That was in nineteen sixty nine, so that's absolutely unacceptable. That yeah. It's just such a lack of, uh, it's such a myopic approach, isn't it? But with the Goon Show, the first three seasons were recorded on sixteen inch transcription discs. You know, this is 1951, two, three, whatever. So you can kind of, you know, there were elements of things being taped over, but you know what I mean? It's radio, it probably felt quite ethereal. But also, if it's their first go. It's easy in hindsight to go, well, this is uh, Peter Sellers, Spike Milligan. Yeah, right. You know, in hindsight to go, this is massively important. Well, yeah. So with Q5, at this point, it's a new Spike Milligan thing that people should be excited about yeah. because... Well, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm, yeah, exactly, right. Before the Goon Show, how much... Stuff, or even at the same time, do you think yeah. oh, I must listen to that radio show? And as I say, we can all bemoan um, things that have been lost, episodes of, of Dad's Army and whatnot that have gone forever, and the, the two Ronnies and Morkel and Wise. But there would have been a lot of things that we're just never going to miss. Yeah. And it also gets into a point this is the point of, of physical media versus digital media. Where are you keeping? you know, mm. 70 years worth of tapes. But yeah, as we say in 1969, you know, find somewhere to put them in, <laughs> in, in, uh, when the Goon Show was being recorded, you know. Yeah. I mean, we've got 160 episodes. I mean, what do you, I, you know, I, when I grew up, it was on regularly. You know, I grew up in the 1950s. <laughs> now, my dad always played it, like he had a load of tapes. I never listened to it growing up. I've only listened to it in the last sort of few years, just out of a general interest. In it doesn't do a great deal for me. Right. I can understand, as I say, um, its significance and importance. And there are uh, performances and moments I really like, but I'd never sort of think to listen to. I'm not sort of upset that there's 90 episodes I've never listened <laughs> <Glad>. to. <laughs> yeah, I really like it. Right. I, um, I listen to, I mean, I downloaded the lot, or, or loads, I should say, um, a while ago. And I've not really got listen around to listen to it, but in preparation for the show, I started listening to a few. And the first one I listened to, I thought, okay, this is going to be a bit of a 
try and appreciate how it's funny. Because I, I don't know, I feel personally, I feel with comedy, a lot of things are. It, it gets dated yeah, quicker than other time, things. Yeah, like. And it's also a thing of, with The Goon Show, at the time it comes out, it's a breath of fresh air and no one's heard the like. Yeah, right, right, Whereas, right. Whereas, and this is going to sound uh, terribly sort of clumsy and unappreciative, but for me, I really like uh, Reeves and Mortimer. That was when I was a teenager. That's what I was listening to and watching. So when I listen to that, I can sort of appreciate what's what yeah. how that's fed into that. But I, I definitely prefer Vic Reeves and Bob Moore to The Goon Show, which I understand is heresy to a lot of people. It's going to get me in peep show trouble again, isn't it? But... It, no, no, I, I, I don't, think no, I don't think just, so. Yeah, you know I mean? understand like, that. That is a mind, The Goon Show. It's not it's something that I grew but it's up not with. Just, yeah, but I don't, it's not just that, is it? It's the fact that it covers... Like, it's... I think we've talked about Paul mentioned it briefly when we were talking about um, Raymond Chandler. Like things have become tropes because yeah. of this. Right. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. You know, when something yeah. comes along and it's fresh, and yeah. it's the first time someone's doing this kind of, um, I don't know, even like the word play. Yeah. You know these sort of things. But when you have heard, well, it's it, absurdist, isn't it? In a way that just hadn't been done. You know, musical comedy and radio comedy up to that point, there would have been puns and wordplay. But this is almost deliberately. Obscurus is almost deliberately designed to not necessarily. It's not paying, leading to a payoff for a punchline necessarily, but just a sense of unreality, which is you know remarkable. But yeah, I mean it, it applies to a lot of stuff. You know, you go back and you watch like say sitcoms from even sort of pre Seinfeld. I would say sort of eighties backwards. It just so. I mean, the, the last I tried that out. But it just, it feels so dated and the same applies to films. I think silent cinema has an advantage where there is no sound. So like physical humour is always going to be funny. But I don't know, I just find with comedy, sometimes you listen to stand, like I like to go back and listen to stand up. Like I'm often making an effort to go and try and find things from the past. And it is the case where it doesn't age as well as, as say drama and other things. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe it's just my opinion. But having said that, so that was my mindset when I listened to one. And I listened to another one. And I've ended up listening to about eight or nine episodes in the last sort of four or five days. And really, really gotten into it. Some bits are stronger than others. But for me, probably it's Peter Sellers is the bit that kind of keeps it... I mean, I think you can't take the scripts out of it. But the performances are, are what what kind of really what I was after. I think it's also a thing of... Because it's a world that they're creating and entering into, and a very rich, vivid world. The more you listen to it, the more you invest in it, the more rewarding it's going to become, isn't it? So the Goon Show ran from 1951 to 1960. In 1963, he wrote Pakun in Australia, I think, when he was staying with his parents, he'd obviously gone by them. I read Pakun when I was, I think, probably 17, and I thought it was fantastic. Like, I was cracking up throughout. Like, it's like a fast paced comic novel when he throws himself in there as well there's bits where like Spike Milligan turns up and stuff and uh, I've not read it since it's sitting on the shelf I'm looking at it right now have you read it Steve? yeah I think I read it when I was about 17, 18 as well it's interesting I didn't realise that you just said it mm. how did you go with it? yeah I really liked it and I haven't revisited it since again similarly which is odd he uh, is set in Ireland isn't it? And, yeah, um, yeah. Um, both his parents are Irish and of course he ended up with an Irish passport Citizenship, I should say. But only after being declared stateless by Britain, essentially. Britain won't accept his attempts to claim citizenship because he's born in India when it, uh, and, and not as part of the, the empire. His parents have Irish citizenship, so he can claim Irish citizenship through them. Although I think later on, his mother gets Australian citizenship. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he, he was under the impression that having been in the British Army, he would have... Qualified. Yeah. It's just bizarre that it isn't. I mean, he was living in Britain from the age of 15. But on top of that, I mean, is it not normal practice? If you're in the Army abroad, then you get, like... Like, I do... As part of my job, I come across birth certificates regularly, you know, adults and children. And on there, like, for example, I mean, someone who's English, and it, they're born in Germany, and it's like... Oh, he's your parents in the military. Well, you look on the birth certificate and it says it's a military base. I mean... Also, he's living in Britain at the time. 
having served in the British Army and his dad mm. served in the British Army. It seems a, a pretty straightforward case of giving the guy citizenship, but they just refuse completely. The Irish are more than happy to have not take anyone, would they? Is it the case? Someone was telling me once, Steve, it's the case, maybe, maybe it's you, that <laughs> with Ireland, if you've got one Irish parent, you can have a passport. Oh, yeah. And that's not standard for other, all countries. Oh, is it not? I don't know. I could be wrong. Right. No, um, yeah. If, you, if your parent is Irish, you can claim citizenship. Me bar an ear. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've got Irish citizenship in the passport, despite being born in London, because both my parents are Irish. So I have a right to Irish citizenship. All right, mate. All right. <laughs> in a misguided attempt, perhaps, to represent himself as someone with <laughs> Asian and Irish heritage. There's not enough people on screen that are Asian with Irish parentage, so... Spike Milligan appears in the 1969 sitcom Curry and Chips, which is written by Johnny Spate, who's best known for To Death Us Do Part in Sickness and Health, the Alf Garnet sitcoms, which parody racist attitudes in a particular type of, of English person. And he tries to sort of revisit the same territory here. It's, it's exploring Is it not immigration. Is it not the case that this came first? And it was he was more successful exploring the same territory. Oh, I thought later it was, with, was, was, was I thought fun. they run sort of they sort of crossed over each other. Well, no, listeners can look it up, can't they? And then you can also <laughs> sign up for an Amazon Prime trial. Go to southlandhardcore.com, click the link for Amazon. Sign up for an uh, Amazon Prime free trial and you'll help fund the show. It'd be really useful if you could. Thank you. Spike Milligan plays Kevin O'Grady, a Pakistani man who is also Irish. <laughs> it's an odd, it's an odd uh, one. It's an odd one. And he comes he's in... He's browned up, just to... Uh, yeah, just, just to, to emphasise that. And the idea is it's parodying the attitudes of the people around him, and indeed the character's own attitudes. There's whole bits about him wanting to leave Pakistan because there's too many Pakistani people there. So he comes to London, and the joke is there's too many Pakistani people in London for him as well. And it's all... It's an attempt to sort of parody racist attitudes, but like in Sickness and in Health, I worry that people aren't necessarily getting that part of the joke. Yeah, well, there's two things there, right? Because I know people that watched... Um, when I was a kid, there were people that watched Alf Garnet for the racism. Yeah. But I've not really seen Alf Garnet. But in the case of this, yeah, certainly, A, yeah, there are people that will watch it not realising it's ironic. And B, I don't think it is ironic. Like, you're play- they're just playing racism for laughs. Like, this is a... You construct a joke where the joke is, like, this guy is African and he wants to eat spiders... Like, we watched five minutes of it a minute yeah, ago yeah. on YouTube. Well, like the theme tune. You know, yeah, it's just like, yeah. oh, yeah, Pakistan. Yeah. You know, and like, the, it's just right, you've constructed a joke and it, it has a racist punchline. And that's what people are laughing at. Like, it's, you know, there's a, there's a huge difference between like kind of character racism and, and awful racism. But in these cases, it's, it's not just like insensitive. They're playing the racism for laughs. There's no, I don't mean there's any ambiguity, and certainly curry and chips, there's no ambiguity, is there? There's also the concern of if you watch on YouTube and you look at the comments underneath, half of them are people going, <laughs> This is, you know, this is what happened before yeah. the political correctness yeah. broke again, took, took over. Yeah. And you're like, Right, so you're, if that was the intention of the show, that's not what you're getting out of it. You're going, Wasn't it great that there was once a time when you could say things like this? And isn't it a shame you can't now? Mm. So whatever the intentions of the, the, the crew and the, the writers were and the cast, that isn't how people are reading it. Even in 2014, mm. let alone in 1969, when, to be kind, attitudes towards... Well, yeah, but it was different, isn't it? Yeah. Well, we're, we're not talking quite Jim Davison. I mean, Jim Davison, we're, you know... Well, I mean, the levels are the same, but it's, a diff- it's still a different... And as you say, even if they failed... Uh, in their intentions here, yeah, at least they've got the intention. They're trying to, mm. to do something. Well, no, I, no, but I don't damage. think they. I don't know if they have got those, those intentions. That's what I'm saying. Are you? Do you think they're sort of ascribing that onto it in the past, sort of thing? Yeah, yeah. I think it's quite clear. There's, there's what you know. The joke is not this guy's racist. But there's also the troubling thing of Spike Milligan uh, across the rest of his career, particularly in the Q series that we'll talk about shortly. Browning up constantly, yeah, to, and doing, uh, you know, Asian 
voices or parodies of Asian voices. Pakistani Daleks. Right. That's the thing, isn't it? I wonder about this because you know the phrase, Steve, I'm allowed. Right. I use yeah. it myself sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously some people use it, uh, abuse it. Yeah. But like, you know, my granddad was black. My, um, you know, it was Jamaican. And like, that makes me different to people that are white. Like, I yeah. mean, I, I might look white, but I, I, I'm ticking mixed race on the form. Yeah, you, yeah. you better believe. So <laughs> like, there's certain things where it doesn't mean that if I'm with a group of white people that I'll make a joke that about black people, well, of course, I mean, yeah, that's, yeah. that's ridiculous. But there are times when I'm having a certain conversation with someone, particularly if, if the people are not white, um, and I'm not, I wouldn't stop, I don't stop and go, I'm allowed, but it's certainly a thing in my mind where I'm like, it's di- me saying this is different yeah. from say, well, not you, Steve, because you know, I know you intimately and uh, <laughs> I know you have a, a heart of gold, but do you know what I mean? <laughs> but say, like, the equivalent, like, there's people that are fully white, and I, you know, I, I have a different, there's a difference in if they say something and if I say something, I see a difference. Obviously, all these things are open to interpretation. No, but I wonder to if... To use an example uh, that I see, not a lot, but certainly from time to time, you use patois. You'll sort of say... You will. You'll <laughs> say particular phrases, and uh, I'd never do that, because it's... That's, you know, even though growing up in South London, I'm more aware of patois and West Indian culture uh, than people who, who haven't grown up around the, those cultures would be, it's not mine to use. Yeah. I do kiss my teeth. <laughs> you do. I do, do. But that's a th- uh, but that's an interesting thing where that was entirely subconscious. It was a thing. My mum's best friend was Solution, so my mum picked it up off her, and I picked it up off my mum. So it's, it's, it's a funny <laughs> thing where it's not. That's not even a deliberate thing. It's just a purely instinctive mm. thing. But I won't apologise for it. I, I I really enjoy the fact. I think it's a really positive example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most of, definitely. Just have uh, of, of growing up in a multicultural mm. society. I, I've picked up this uh, trait that shouldn't be anything to do with with my personality and makeup, but in a very natural way. It's not me sort of, as they drop in patois to try and uh, like look edgy or yeah, something. That sort is of, why I do it. I mean, like, but no, no. But yeah, <laughs> when, when white people do it, a lot of time it's just uh, to use a, a very popular phrase: hips to doofus, isn't it? I mean, it's like middle-class people, middle-class yeah, white people just also, wanting to appropriate Yeah, them. but I mean, going, I mean, I think that's going away from it a little bit. But say, kind of talking about things that are offensive. If I say something, like, we can all be sure. I say, we. You know, people don't, people don't know me, there's a problem in it. And also, say, Lakeisha would have a different attitude to I do. But if I say something, Steve, you know full well that where I'm mixed race, like, there's no doubt there. Yeah, yeah. Whereas if say someone is fully white and they make make a comment, sometimes it does it makes you think. And like there yeah, be yeah. white people listening to this who'd probably be shocked, but you know, for for me and for some black people, if you know white people, like you're almost sitting around waiting for them to say something racist at some point in your relationship. And like like And it's just uh, waiting and then just dealing with it and getting much, much yeah, much, yeah. Much less me than actual black people. Have I kept you waiting for too long? Should I do, <laughs> do something so we can get beyond it? But like you know, you meet people sometimes, and you just like you start going down a certain road in conversation. And you think, where is this going, man? You like and like a black people, you white people wouldn't even think of this, but black people have to, will have this thought all the time. I can draw a parallel to that as a white person, where being a white working class person, you do get people, other white working class people, who from time to time will just assume. That you are racist, right? So right, we'll right, say right. something racist to you, yeah. and then give you a look like, "Come, uh, guys, I'm all right." You know, let's. <laughs> we all know yeah, a lot of them, right? And you just sort of, well, you know, um, the fact that I am white, uh, white working class, that you are going to be racist, sexist, or a homophobe. Mm. So they'll say something racist, yeah, right, sexist, right. or homophobic, and you just sort of look at them like, "Well, that's not really a thing, is it?" And they sort of like. You know, and, and but the best one is when they get annoyed at you <laughs> because you you know you're not playing the game because you're you're not on the same team and you're like let's just leave it. There's nothing to be gained for either of us here, is there? No. So it's it's interesting how different backgrounds and ideas yeah. can give you. But so so Spike Milligan, he's got a unique or fairly fairly unique. He's got uh, you know he's in the minority, isn't he? Of his fifteen years, he grew up in India. He's been denied British citizenship. They're, they're like you're not one of us, and. You know, he's got Irish parents. Is he... I think he's probably under the impression he's like, I'm, I'm basically one of them. You know, I might be browning up, but... See, you I know. think there's an element... I, I agree with that, but I'd go even further. And it's also partly because I love using the phrase statelessness. But I think if someone... If you're declared stateless, 
particularly if you are it's a particular time in his life when he's a teenager he's got a particular outlook in the world he's a comedian a performer I think for him he felt that gave him and this is me you know implying a, a, a great deal across his, his, his mindset and attitude but I can imagine it being a, quite a freeing thing where you go ah so I'm not of anything so I'm of everything so I can appropriate and use mm. and communicate and talk about anything that I want and it gives him a sort of freedom where he's not and if people want to accuse me he's like well, I'm not really I'm not this mm. or not I'm, it's this sort of this space between that I think he, I imagine he imagined himself in I don't know I don't know if he's ever gone on the record about this but as you say I think having that unique background of born in India so I'm a bit Indian to Irish parents mm. so I'm a bit Irish while uh, thinking of yourself as a British person so I'm a bit British but never quite fitting in any of these spaces I, I, I think that gave him a particular uh, that's what, the, the feeling I get yeah and he's I standing think... behind it all going I'm saying all these things but there's not really anything to it because I'm not yeah, taking yeah, yeah. a stance I'm not I'm going from a particular position I'm yeah allowed. exactly yeah because I'm between all these spaces rather than in them shouting at someone else and I mean I don't I don't find it to be hateful no, but I don't think it, I do think it's da- it was damaging. Yeah, it's not helpful. No, that's the thing. Uh, but you're absolutely right. I, I think that's an important point to make. There's no there's no vitriol to it. It's very and this is going to sound ridiculous talking about uh, racist characters and caricatures. It's playful. I think. Yeah. He, I think for him, he really enjoyed uh, doing voices and the opportunity mm. to do, but and particularly kind of. And this is getting back to the Goon Show again. It's a thing of when they're doing these voices, they're not, a lot of them are just really, fun. they're drawn nothing. They're not based mm. on a particular race or gender or time. It's just an odd voice. But I think he wanted to do, and he does sort of, he plays with attitudes as well. There's a bit in one of the, the Q sketches, and obviously we'll get onto that, where he's like, he's just, he's got some, some foreigners of some description outside. And he's like, it leaned out the window shouting, uh, Oi, don't dump your rubbish there, you, you know. Your racial slur. <laughs> yeah, and then he sort of pauses and goes, that's where we put our rubbish. And it's this whole sort of idea of, you know, they're not doing the wrong thing, they're doing the wrong thing because they are the wrong thing. And it's an odd sort of, yeah, it's a very confusing sort of thing. But as you say, there's no, there's no vitriol there. It's not a case of him. Mm, I think it's just the way he would parody him things, the way he would parody a cockney. Yeah. But, you know... It's not are not in the minority, yeah. are they? Going off on a quick tangent, Steve, have you ever seen The Party, the Peter Sellers film where he plays an Indian no, guy? Actually, no, no. It, I don't know if it was a bit, I went into it hearing that it was not good and I really enjoyed it. Right. But I'm just throwing it out there. So why don't you tell us what Q is, Steve? Or Q5? Yeah, Q5 is confusing after the first series. I like the idea that the name comes from the BBC's own six-point scale of technical quality, where Q5 indicates severe degra- degradation to picture or sound, and Q6 was a complete loss of sound and vision. So him taking this name from this thing of, this is not supposed to be, this is not what television is supposed to look or sound like. And it's essentially a sketch show, but structured unlike any sketch show that people have really seen up to this point yeah yeah I mean it's the elephant in the room here Steve is it it debuts in 1969 which is uh, another sketch show started on the BBC that year Monty Python's Flying Circus and Monty Python obviously is much more successful the fact you've heard of Monty Python dear listener (laughs) but Spike Milligan is the biggest influence on Monty Python, isn't he? All the way back to the Goon Show. John Cleese describes him as the great god to us all. Yeah, the Goon Show, the Goon Show particularly, yeah, is, uh, you know, you can imagine the um, six of them. How many of them in Monty Python? You know, even like Terry Gilliam was in New York in the 60s as a kid listening to it on the radio. You know, it's it was just hugely influential and so much so that, you know, they were doing... I'm not sure exactly uh, the origins of Monty Python. Is it Footlights or something like that? Yes, yeah. But they were... Q, Q5 came on television, Spike Lee's brand new... Spike Milligan. 
Das ist fucking. Das ist joint. His new sketch show and like the pythons are phoning each other up saying like, are you seeing this? This is what we're meant to be doing. And like, I think it sounds very similar to when Eric Clapton, like they're getting ready, they're doing Cream. They've just recorded the album, uh, The Israeli Gears. No, or would it have been The Israeli Gears? Or one before, probably one before. And he goes to this like club and he sees Hendrix play and he's just like, uh, okay. <laughs> But, you know, it didn't really work out like for Monty Python, did it? They dropped theirs and then it just became like the goon show one of the most important works in the history of comedy you also feel that the direct influence like as i say the ideas that were the origin of monty python feeds out of the goon show but then seeing q and then doing their own series gives them space to sort of as you say the conversation is this is what we're supposed to be doing but it suddenly forces them to shift things slightly and maybe even right, shift right. things up yeah, maybe yeah, it's yeah. a great impetus to sort of you know they, they could they could have maybe coasted early on so again no one's ever done this so suddenly you've got to go alright we can't just do what we plan to do we've got to do more than that and perform it's got to be spot on so it could be you know a real spur towards their own greatness you like Monty Python Steve do you? do I like Monty Python? yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah a lot even Monty Python though you know you're not you, you're kind of going Yeah, people would have been dying watching this. But oh, yeah. Like, the film, I mean, the, uh, the Holy Grail um, yeah. is, is, the film is, and The Life of Brian, both brilliant. But with a show, as great as it is, you are, there is an element of, like, imagine watching this at the time. Yeah. And, and also, people will one day feel that about uh, Two and a Half Men, I suppose. <laughs> it does come down to the thing of, yeah, uh, getting back to my previous example, again, prefer Reeves and Mortimer to Monty Python's Flying Circus and I'm, I'm pretty sure Vic Reeves and Bob Mortimer would disagree with me <laughs> but that's how I feel that's what I grew up with so I think you've, you've, you've got to appreciate things at the time and, and look at how they feed into one as you say you know things that we appreciate now as essential tropes and ideas originate in these places it's odd to say this but Monty Python's Flying Circus is a lot catchier of a name isn't it <laughs> the Q5 so that won't have helped um, but that's a very that feels to me like a very spite Milligan thing to do to almost make it difficult for yourself what, what are you going to call the show Q5 what does it mean I'm not really going to say you can have a guess about technical specifications or you know the launching of the QE2 but I'm not going to nail anything down The Goon Show was originally called The Junior Crazy Gang, featuring those crazy people, the goons. <laughs> Which was a very uh, cynical thing, because you had the crazy gang themselves in the musicals at the time. So it was an attempt to try like and... Vinnie Jones, John Scales. <laughs> Jones, John Scales. Uh, just, it, it was just an attempt to try and cash in on that. But the, the, the goon bit at the end makes it its own. Did you watch any of Q? The other thing is that between the first and second season of Q which changed its name for the second season, Q6, is a few years, isn't it? Whereas Monty Python was like, yeah. had been doing them sort of every year-ish. Well, as you say, it's a thing where both series debut that year. One is more popular than the other, so it means you get options for a second season, and that's Monty Python's... Yeah, I mean, there's talk as well that Spike Lee... There's talk as well that Spike Milligan was difficult yes. but I mean it's diff very difficult to substantiate what did you think of Q Steve do you, I mean have you seen it before this I've weekend seen bits and pieces but this is the most I'd, I'd watched of it and the, the, probably the closest I'd watched it in the sense of I was like looking out for certain things it's interesting there's you know elements to it for some reason I was really tickled by the whole wardrobe tags left on the costumes I don't know if you spotted that they would just routinely just get costumes out of the back and didn't bother taking off the costume tag. so you just see policemen lying on the floor and they've got like a costume tag hanging off the shoulder of the thing. and I quite like that sort of feeling that it is it taps into again the manic energy you know similar thing to the Goon Show where it's like we're, we've got such a pace going here we're not even going to stop to do things but I felt at other points it was very self-indulgent Mm. There's a lot of it where it's just sort of Spike Milligan sort of looking at the camera going, who knows what's going to happen? And it's all, yeah. you know, and, and that's interesting in its own way, but if you rely on it too much, it can. A lot of it felt a bit sort of loose in terms of 
Yeah. yeah. Compared to Monty Python. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And, and compared to the Goon Show as well. Yes. And uh, you've got to imagine there's an element of that that is down to the fact that you've got others involved. And not just others. You know, on the Goon Show, you've got Sprat Milligan and Peter Sellers and Harry Seacomb. And then on Monty Python, you've got like Bob Todd. Who? Bob Todd is just like... Oh, I thought you were naming Monty Python people, Bob oh, sorry. Yeah. But yeah, on Q5, you've got like Bob, you've got people who are definitely a tier below Spike Miller. Yeah, right. But say like, say like, I don't know, John Cleese was the driving force of a certain sketch on Monty Python. Yeah. You've got like Eric Idle and Graham Chapman and, yeah. you know... Uh, you've got a, a wider... And then like, if Terry Gilliam would go on to be like, I mean, on the shelf there, Steve, Gilliam on Gilliam, I've got on my shelf, so shows you what I think of him as a film director... You know, it, whereas when Spike Milligan was left on his own, I would say with no help, but, you know, allowed yeah. to indulge, it does, you know, the absurdist stuff ends up becoming just a bit silly, doesn't it? And as I say, just very loose, it, um, and this is going to be an odd segue and probably something that people um, wouldn't normally quote as an example when examining the career of Spike Milligan or Monty Python's Flying Circus, but recently I watched 22 Jump Street. Okay. And there's a scene in that where uh well, that holds up in fifty years. Who then. you know, let's re explore. Meet us back here in fifty years. <laughs> but there's a scene in that in uh like a student club and there's an improv comedy team and they're looking for examples and Champagne just like shouting out ridiculous things and not helping them at all. But they sort of come off stage and he sits with them and this is it really sort of crystallised something for me about me not in, enjoying a particular kind of comedy where Shane Payne's like, so what's, what were you doing out there? And I'm like, we just sort of make it up as we go along. And he's like, right, we should, what you should probably do is just sit down beforehand <laughs> and then find out what's funny and then just do that. And they're like, yeah, that's a different kind of comedy. A stand-up. He's like, yeah, that's the one everyone likes, isn't it? <laughs> and it is a, you know, there is a certain energy in ad-libbing and doing improv, but there's also, I don't know, that's not what I enjoy particularly. No, because it, like you, I mean, it's Shannon Tatum's character's right. I mean, it's, Less good, isn't it? Going back to Q and watching it, one thing that struck me and pleased me, particularly in preparation for this show... You could do like a good show, something struck me, you know. <laughs> no. <laughs> There's a sound effect. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> couple of mentions for Lewisham. On Q? Yeah, just on Q. Oh, which, yeah. Um... There's the... On Q. Same scene where the guy's shouting people out the window, he's like, welcome to Lewisham. And there's another sketch where... Someone declares that it's illegal to be over six foot tall in Lewisham. So it's interesting that he's, it's obviously a place that has lived with him and he is going to drop it in. You know, not just random places, both times it was Lewisham. And maybe it's just like, I'm listening out for that, so I'm a bit more attuned to it. But yeah, it did strike yeah, me. I mean, how often is Lewisham getting mentioned on telly? That's the thing, thing, isn't it? This is way before um, Lucky Fella, isn't it? <laughs> In 1962, Spike Milligan co-writes The Bed Sitting Room, a one-act play set in set after Nuclear Attack, the main element of which is the fact that one of the characters, Lord Fortnum, is slowly turning into a bed sitting room. <laughs> Don't give me any spoilers though, Steve, because I haven't seen it. <laughs> in 1969, it's adapted into a film directed by Richard Lester where they also managed to assemble a very impressive cast, including Spike Milligan himself. For me, the most significant elements in the cast is the presence of Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, who it feels like you can almost do an alternative comedy family tree with Spike Milligan in the middle of it, where you've got The Goon Show and you've got Q and you've got The Bed Sitting Room. And from that, you get, let's say, Python. And then, you know, Peter Cook Dudley Moore, while never doing work as absurd as Spike Milligan's, certainly massively influenced by him, aren't they? You yeah, can't yeah, help yeah, but yeah. feel his his influence in, in their writing work. I saw it a few years back at the ICA, and it is a lot of fun as well. It's the sort of thing where it's a very odd... Film, yeah. yeah, it does. It does in a way that I didn't necessarily expect it to. And it's interesting as it's, you know, as I say, the cast is just full of familiar faces in far from familiar roles. So it's, it's well worth a watch if you get a chance. 
not necessarily a piece of work in and of itself, but in 1971, Spike Milligan causes controversy by attacking an art exhibition consisting of catfish oysters and shrimp which were to be electrocuted at the Hayward Gallery. Goes after it with a hammer. Yeah, right. Just start smashing up the exhibit. You get in trouble, yeah? I think so, yeah. Give them a mop in it. I was reading somewhere it said Spike Milligan was an environmental activist. And, uh, you know, that's part of it, isn't it? Right. But it was like, yeah, he uh, led campaigns against music. Yeah. Well, it's not the same, is it? Like, a little bit of noise. not quite the same as sort of uh, draining the oceans, is it? Not fracking, is it? <laughs> quite recently, he was given the accolade of having written the funniest joke ever. By It's one of those ones where a scientist has analysed it. And decided <laughs> that it has the elements that you need yeah. for a joke to work. Rather than, you know... And it, again, brings us back to... Monty Python they're at the funniest joke in the world yeah, which yeah. kills people in that situation <laughs> so what was the joke the Spike Milligan joke a couple of hunters are out in the woods when one of them falls to the ground he doesn't seem to be breathing his eyes are rolled back in his head the other guy whips out his cell phone and calls the emergency services he gasps to the operator my friend has collapsed I think he's dead what can I do the operator in a calm soothing voice says just take it easy I can help first let's make sure he's dead there's a silence, then a shot is heard. The guy's voice comes back on the line. He says, okay, now what? That's a goon show bit, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. So they've sort of expanded upon that goon show bit. Yeah, so, I mean, the thing is, no offence, Steve, but when, like, Harry Seacom and Peter Sellers did it, it was better. <laughs> was it better? And also, it took me out of a winter cell phone and emergency cell Yeah, this is the thing, isn't it? That's the thing. It, you can't help feeling that they've... Uh, taking massive liberties. Also, it's just, it's like with most shows, it's just too long, isn't it? Yeah, that was too long. All these things happening. I edited that version as well. I've cut a few things out of it. In the the, uh, version that was online, it says a couple of New Jersey hunters. Doesn't matter where they're from, does it? Lose that. The thing is, that doesn't, that doesn't work as a joke you tell. It works brilliant as a goon show bit. As a skit. My dad, I think, is a fan of his poetry as well. We sort of, so, certainly heard like in the Ning Nang Nong growing up and again voted the nation's favourite poem really? yeah <laughs> that one years later. yeah that one <laughs> and uh, there's a great bit in the news report I think the headline says nation's favourite poem is and then there's like quotation marks absolute nonsense <laughs> <laughs> might be Milligan's own words I'm not yeah, sure yeah. but um, yeah it is his, his poetry is fantastic. It's just, it's just silly nonsense, Ryan, but I'm a big fan of that. What about his uh, According To books? Any good? We, didn't really have, we they... obviously didn't have those in my house. Yeah. The they... Gospel According to Spike Milligan. <laughs> you know, the first time I watched The Life of Brian, which he's in, actually. Yes. Um, just happened to be holiday nearby. Did you yeah, in Tunisia. Yeah, 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 yeah <laughs> He's up the road in his sandals, and they're like, come down. Yeah, I watched it the first time. My pa- I waited till my parents went on a holiday and I locked the front door. <laughs> <laughs> that was quite a secret, that laugh on him. <laughs> <laughs> Close the curtains. <laughs> <laughs> Even in death, Spike keeps us laughing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a famous story of his epitaph, which he'd quipped in life. He wanted on his tombstone, I told you I was ill. Which is it's pretty strong, isn't it? It's strong, it's strong. Yeah. When he dies and he's buried, the churchyard won't allow that to go onto the tombstone. I think they're worried it's disrespectful. I mean, he asked for it on his tombstone. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what business it is. I mean, if there's anything the graveyard needs, it's a bit of human... Life relief, for not yeah. Surely. But they get round it by putting it on the tombstone in Gaelic. Right. The language of his forefathers. <laughs> And in English, it has the words "love, light, peace," which is a nice message. And the church church commissioner didn't have any problem with that; and they were fine. So we can add to his many honours, Steve South London Hardcore Hall of Fame, in there alongside Charlie Chaplin. They're the only two funny men so far, aren't they? What are you thinking? Make room for Joe Brand. I'm trying to think who else is in the Hall of Fame. I lose track. Michael Faraday. Charles Babbage. 
Faraday was well funny though as well. He's uh, well known. Mm. No, he wasn't. I mean, did uh, you know similar to Spider-Man as well? Uh, did lead uh, public protests and campaigns against people rolling hoops in the street. So he was also a man that was uh, obsessed with trivialities. Did he really? Yeah, Faraday led um, public campaigns against kids playing with hoops and streaks. He hated the noise. Oh, it wasn't because he thought they were going to like, I don't know, alternate sorts of energy and put him out of business. <laughs> no, but you can file it alongside Milligan's hatred of music. We should make that a really specific qualification for entry to the Hall of Fame. You have to be annoyed by something that's not really that annoying at all. I'll tell you what, somebody today said I should watch um, Spike Milligan on Room 101. Yeah, that is good. Does he put music in there? I think he does. Paul Merton. Paul Merton. Maybe Paul Merton might get in the South London Hall of Fame one day. Is he South London? Merton? (laughs) We do not recognise Paul Merton. No, I'm quite correct to do so. <laughs> right, com. You can listen to the other Hall of Fame episodes on iTunes, of course, as well, and all the other episodes. Either Big Daddy or um, Giant Haystacks is also in the... Or Mick McManus. <laughs> which one? One of, one of those is also in the South <laughs> Hall of Fame. I forget which. And, of course, David Bowie. And if you want to go on to Amazon, pick up some Q, maybe some Goon Show, maybe a copy of The Bed Sitting Room. Yeah. If you go through com, you get the same... Cheap prices that Amazon offer all around, but we managed to cut into their profit margin by kicking a few quid back to us. It helps us pay for website hosting, entry into various historic palaces and galleries and coffees. You follow us on Twitter at SLHC and you can follow Holdfast Network at Holdfast Network. Read read the signs, left the gap. Harry Seacombe, you, I suppose. (laughs) To my uh, Milligan Milligan and Sellers. (laughs) 